Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Matt McWilliams. I've known Matt for years. I am super excited to see his brand new book, his first book, titled Turn Your Passions Into Profits, The Proven Path for Building a Rewarding Online Business. And It just kind of felt like a no-brainer to me to have this conversation with Matt on a productivity podcast because this has been a struggle, not just for me, but also for Matt, but many people out there that I've had conversations with face-to-face and online when it comes to you have things that you want to do and earn money doing those things because you're passionate about them, you feel alive when you're doing them, even when you're doing the hard work of those things in that passion It still beats any kind of hard work that is your day job, so to speak. You know, if you've been there, raise your hand as you're running or driving or listening. But there's a lot of people in that boat. And that's exactly what this book is from Matt. It's all about that path and different options that you have when it comes to building an online business and essentially what the title says, turning your passions into profits, being able to monetize. How soon do you do that? How much pressure do you put on the thing that is your passion, but you don't want to put too much on it because you don't want to kill it, you know? So if this is resonating with you at all, just know, one, you're not alone. Two, Matt's got a great book. And three, that's exactly what we talk about is his story and a little bit of my story and a bunch of the experience from this book. But not only that, the book is brand new. And so True to fashion and true to Matt McWilliams' generous personality, he has a ton of bonus stuff to give along with the book if you're pre-ordering it, which you can do at passionsintoprofitsbook.com slash Eric. That's E-R-I-K. Again, that's passionsintoprofitsbook.com slash E-R-I-K. That's where you can get a free chapter of the book, as well as a bunch of pre-order bonuses. So make sure to check that out, even as you're listening to this conversation with Matt McWilliams. 
Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Matt McWilliams. Matt, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Eric, it is so good to finally be here. Uh, long-time listener, first time. How's that go? <laughs> first time caller, yeah. yeah. First time guest, whatever. First time guest, yeah. yeah. You and I, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, and in fact, we're fairly local. We're probably less than an hour away from each other, and I've done affiliate programs with you in the past at different points in time. I'm curious, when did you get started? Because I know I started this show in 2012, so mm. we've just passed 10 years, and I can't remember exactly the first thing that I got involved with affiliate wise with you, but it was in those early first two, maybe three years of the show. When did you get started again? I got started in 2005. Okay. So way before me. Yeah. And then we kind of crossed each other's paths about 2014. We were both promoting Michael Hyatt, who actually, that was the first episode of your podcast. I know it was the first one you recorded, not the first one you released. I, I want to say it was maybe like the fifth or 10th one you released. Somewhere in there was when I first discovered you. And then, you know, so we were, we were kind of like two of those people. It happens a lot on the internet, right? Like you'd heard of me and I'd heard of you. And then next thing you know, we were finally, we're interacting with each other. Uh, yeah, it's been eight, almost eight and a half years, probably is as crazy as that sounds. Oh my gosh. And I want to talk a little bit more about your journey to this book sure. that you just have released called Turn Your Passion into Profits, The Proven Path for building a rewarding online business. I mean, essentially, that's what you've been doing this whole time. Now, you've pivoted into things, you've learned things, you've experienced things. I'm curious, I know one of the key pieces about creating an online business that you're key on is making sure that you're both passionate about it as well as that it makes a profit and that most people fall into one side or the other of that and often not both. And, you know, you came to kind of a revelation or a, you know, an, an awakening to that at some point. But what, what was your journey to getting not only to the point of this book, but to where you were in the thick of the struggle to make that passion and profit happen? Yeah. For me, it's it seeing both sides of, of kind of those two extremes. The one extreme is, you know, you got the entrepreneur that's super passionate about what they're doing. They love it. They're making an impact in the world. I'll use my story as the example. You know, 2010, 2011, 2012, I loved what I was doing. I'd started a blog of my own. You know, my story, I said, goes back to 2005 and we'll get back there in a little bit. But like I had this blog, I was making an impact. I remember you were leaving comments on the blog and, you know, I had this great community and we all were like, I was changing lives. You know, I'd get an email two every week. Like Matt, you had you made a huge impact on my life. Unfortunately, I wasn't making any money. And the, you know, the thing is like the kids soccer, you know, it's a couple thousand dollars a year. And unfortunately I can't just forward them an email every month and it, you know, counts $200 towards my payment. The mortgage company didn't take my impact on the world. They never took those blog comments and went, oh my gosh, Matt, you're helping people that counts for $500 towards a mortgage. Like, no, they require money. And so eventually I was going to burn out. I was really, really close. I was this close to burning out. And then the world was going to miss out on my message. The flip side, and I've been there before, 2007, 2008, making great money, changing the world in a way. But most importantly to me at that time, I should say, was, you know, I was, I was doing great financially, but I hated what I was doing. And I say most importantly to me at that time, because I was still trying to figure out what the heck I wanted to be when I grew up. I've been there also 2002, 2003. I was a golf instructor with my dad. I was 22, 23 years old, making five to $10,000 in a weekend. I was great at marketing. I discovered how to do marketing. I got really good at it really fast. I was early. I was an early adopter with Google AdWords. So it was easy for me to get in. 
and I was making great money, but I hated every minute of teaching golf. I had no desire to be doing that. And finally, my dad fired me because he realized that like, you know, they fired me, freed me, however you want to say it, you know? And, and so, and I, and I appreciate that. So there's these two extremes, right? We love what we're doing. We're not making money. We're making great money, but we don't love what we're doing. And I was like, you know, I just see people, 98% of people are in one of those two extremes pretty equally. How do we become that 2% that's both passionate about what they're doing? They love what they're doing. They're making an impact on the world and they're able to make good money doing it. And good money can mean different things to different people. Like, hey, I make more than enough to survive. I make more than enough to live comfortably in the United States. That might be $70,000, $80,000, $100,000. It could be 10, 20, 30 million dollars. It's up to you what that number is. But the idea here and the whole premise of the book, of course, is in our business is like, how do we get the best of both worlds with those? And again, I've seen both extremes. I never liked it on either of those extremes. So we want to marry those things in the middle. Now, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Venn diagrams. So that sweet spot in the middle is exactly where we want to be. And that's what you're talking about here in the book. I know from personal experience that (laughs) it can be kind of daunting to get started. Let's talk on the passion side of things. When we, you know, like you and your blog and me in this show, when we first got started, again, you can't pay bills with blog comments or Apple podcast reviews. It just doesn't work that way. It'd be great if you could click a button and have it happen. It doesn't happen. That's not how it works. But I think a lot of people won't even start into something that they're passionate about at all because of a few different reasons. And you talk about these in the book. They either see somebody else already doing it air quotes, it, they they see somebody else doing something similar, yeah. I should say, to what they want to do, or they see somebody so far ahead of them, at least so they think, doing what they want to do, that they just think it's not possible. They're like, does the world even really need me and my voice, my passion, my insight, my experience? We're filled with self-doubt as a natural kind of way we are as beings. How do we validate even just getting started, let alone then as we're progressing through the business. You know, it, it starts with the, the realization of what you just said. The world does need your message. One of my favorite lines in the book, I say, the world needs your message, but it's not going to wait passively or patiently for it. The world needs your message, but we're going to move on without it. There are people out there, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, tens of thousands, whatever the number is, they need your message, but they're going to find somebody else who can help them with that problem. They're going to find somebody else who says essentially the same thing. And you go, oh, well, if there's other people saying the same thing, like you're not making any sense here. There's already people saying the same thing, but they're different people. You know, I I talk a lot, especially with like, you know, our female audience and our female clients. And I'm like, okay, your competition is a married mother of one. She got a single kid and she's 37 and she's never worked outside the home. Nothing wrong with that. That's just, that's her reality. I said, you're a single mom. You've raised five kids by yourself and you've been a corporate CEO. That's a different perspective than the first person. Neither one of them's better than the other. Different people are going to relate to them differently. You know, some people have letters behind their name. Some people are doctors. Some people went to Harvard. Some people graduated from Oxford and they know all the science behind certain things, but they don't have experience with their own children or their own life. They don't have experience. Oh, they know all the science that says, here's how you lose weight. Here's how you, you know, get over ADHD. Here's the, what the medications say and all the journals say, but they don't have experience dealing with it themselves, but you do. 
you know, one of my favorite stories in the whole book is this, uh, this lady, I know you've read it, so you, you probably remember the story, but there's this lady that I talked to one day, she was interviewing for our mastermind and she was like, Matt, I'm, I want to join your mastermind. I want to be around other people who are building an online business, blah, blah, blah. She's like, but there's one problem. I just don't know that I can do this. I'm like, why not? Like, you just told me you want to do this, right? You have a passion for helping people with autistic children. She has two autistic children herself. She's like, yeah, but, but Matt, I don't have, like, I'm, I don't know the science. I'm not a doctor. She's like, I dropped out of community college after one year. And there's all these doctor so-and-sos who've written these very intelligent books about autism and they know the science and they know the medication and they know, she's like, I don't even know what a cerebellum is, you know, or amygdala or all that and how they affect and the neuroscience and all these things. I was like, what you've told me is you've raised a very successful 13 and 10 year old who are doing great in school. You know, they're, they do their chores. They're adjusted. They have friends. You travel with them which is apparently a big thing. A lot of parents with autistic children are terrified to travel. You know, they're terrified to get on an airplane because they get out of their routine. They wake up early. They stay up late. They put them on a metal tube and put them up at 38,000 feet and then expect them to like do that with me at 43 and I'm not going to be myself, you know? And so she was like, oh, okay. And I said, so talk about that. Talk about life with your autistic children. There are other people saying the same thing, but they don't have your experience and your perspective. So fast forward, this part's not in the book because this happened after we'd finished the manuscript, but she emailed me and she's like, hey man, I just want to let you know how things are going. She has a YouTube channel now. She went from zero to 10,000 subscribers in her YouTube channel in a little bit less than a year. She had a video that came out a few months ago, has over half a million or a quarter million views about traveling with autistic children. And there was a lady who left a comment on there. I'll never forget it. said, this video changed my life. I have one autistic child. He's seven years old. We haven't left the county that we live in in four years because I've been too afraid to do anything. Because of your video, I just booked a flight to Hawaii. So we we hear that and go, okay, that's, that's a great story. How does that apply to me? But it really does in the aspect of, yeah, there's other people saying the same thing. There's other people with your message, but nobody has your unique experiences and your, your unique perspective. And I know you're friends with John Acuff and there's a quote from him in the book. It says, never compare your beginning to someone else's middle. That's the answer to the question. We compare where we're at today. When I started in 2012, I compared where I was at to Michael Hyatt, who'd been blogging for five years, who'd written a book about blogging. How am I supposed to be at the same level as the guy whose book is the thing that inspired me to start a you know a blog? That'd be ridiculous. 10 years later, watch out, Michael, I'm catching up to you. You know, like <laughs> those things, but we compare that beginning, go, my website doesn't look as good or I'm not as polished. If you go back and look at the first videos I shot in 2013, oh my gosh, they looked pathetic. The audio was terrible. The whole time I'm looking like at a 10 degree angle off to the side of the camera. I don't know what I was looking at. There was a bird. I don't know. You know, my first few podcasts, I didn't know how to close the podcast. So it was just a lot of me going, well, I guess that's all for this week. So see you next time. Bye. I was an idiot because it was my first podcast. I've now recorded over 700 podcast episodes. So of course I sound a little bit better today. You know, I had a cheap microphone. I was talking into the end of my phone on my first 10 podcasts, but I started, you know, we think, oh, we have to have Eric's podcast equipment. What's your, I mean, your setup's probably, you know, thousands of dollars or something, but we think we have to have the thousand dollars setup to start. No, you don't talk into the end of your phone and record something so that when you do get the nice equipment, you know what the heck you're doing. Yeah. I didn't start with this. I started with other stuff that was just yeah, good, good probably enough. Probably a $70 mic, right? Yeah. There's a lot of good enough stuff out there. And I think that's the thing is like, you got to start with good enough. You got to start 
first off. And honestly, practice in public. I think the other piece to it is being aware, being tapped in to your audience, building an audience. Talk about that a little bit, I, I'm, because it's not all about you and your uniqueness. And even though there's overlap, you still have uniqueness and you have a message and you have passions to start with. But there's also then, like you said, there are people that like with the difference between like, say, the person that's the mother of five and was the CEO and was a single mother and all that versus the other one who has two littles and, you know, works at home and da da da, you know, two different worlds, some overlap, not a lot, yeah. but the audiences could be overlapped a little, but drastically different. How do you build relationship with your audience, especially as you're getting started, right? Yeah, I think you had the right word, Eric. Like a lot of it is trial and error early on. True. We shouldn't be afraid of experiments. I am who I am. All right. There are people in the internet marketing world who the one, it's like almost like a meme. There's a guy, I'm not going to mention his name, but about 10 years ago, he became infamous because he was standing in front of his probably rented $125,000 car. And he'd be holding up one of those big checks, like the publisher's clearinghouse check. Like I made $100,000 in affiliate commissions last month. And the check wasn't casting a shadow like the rest of his body was. His arms were casting a shadow, but the check wasn't. It was obviously Photoshopped. But even if it hadn't have been, let's just say that really was a real check. That's not the point to me. The fact that it was Photoshopped isn't the point. That just diminishes it even further. I'm not that guy. Like we have two kids. We live in Northeast Indiana. I coach soccer. I don't miss my kids' games. Like I am not going to be on, if, if my kids have a game, I'm not going to be at a conference. I'm not, I don't go to many conferences. I go to one or two a year. I don't do a lot of the things that a lot of people do because those aren't my priorities. So who do I attract? I attract people who are turned off by that flashiness. There's nothing wrong with the flashiness. Like, as I'm saying this, I know you probably have people in mind, like prototypical internet marketers. We all have that picture of who they are, right? They're on their private plane and they, they're like, yo, what's up? And yeah, here's me with some, with some bling bling. And they're doing the, you know, they're throwing cash around. Okay. I'm not going to judge that. There's nothing wrong to me. That's just, it's, I'm neutral on that. There's nothing wrong or right about it. That's just, that's who they are. And I'm who I am. And the thing is, like, whatever we're doing, though, we've got to be able to stand out. If we're going to attract an audience, we have to be able to stand out. Getting noticed has never been easier in the entire history of mankind. It's never been easier. Flashback 150 years, you were lucky. If, if you weren't like a politician of national prominence or an author, most people never heard of anybody outside of their county. You'd never heard of anybody. Today, we hear about people all over the world. We call it their 15 minutes of fame. Some people become famous. And their fame goes away in like a week. Getting noticed has never been easier. You can tweet something. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you compare yourself, like, you know, and this is not an insult to you, Eric. I'm just using you as an example, but compared to say, you know, the president of the United States or other world leaders or say Elon Musk, you're nobody. And again, I don't mean that as an insult, but I'm saying if you put on that pedestal, right? The difference today is you still reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Whereas a hundred years ago, if you weren't on their level, you were literally a nobody, but today you're somebody. So getting noticed has never been easier, but the, the dichotomy is it means that standing out's never been harder. It has never been harder to really be able to stand out to people like it was years ago. Cause it used to be years ago. All you had to do was be known for one thing. You could be a good blacksmith and everybody in your county knew who you were. You're the only good blacksmith. So everybody went to you. It was super easy. 
So it's never been harder to stand up. So we have to be really intentional about standing out. And I walk through it in the book, but you know, step one, and this ties into developing that relationship. Number one is your style and personality. Like you've got to be able to stand out with your style and personality. So for me, great example of this, like your writing style. I don't write like my English teacher would approve of. All right. I write in a way that I write for effectiveness. So I write a lot of very short sentences and short paragraphs. That's my writing style. My speaking style. This is my normal speaking style. I'm very gregarious. I'm very handsy. You know, I'm a little bit loud. You know, sometimes my wife, when we're, you know, we're, we're lying in bed and I get really excited about something. She's like, okay, can you please talk a little bit softer? Cause this is getting ridiculous. You know, that's my style. Now, am I like this? Like I am with you? No. And one of the things I write about in the book is about Chris Rock. This guy came up to Chris Rock one time. He was like, Chris, are you like this all the time? Like you're on stage. He's like, no, this is me on stage. It's me, but it's three times me. So you take those features that are uniquely you and you ramp them up. If you're from the South, turn up the Southern accent a little bit. If you have a certain style, like if you're in a world that's very buttoned up and you're like, you typically wear just a blazer, you know, maybe your, your world is all ties to take off the tie. You'll stand out in that world. If you're in a world that's dress shirts and no tattoos and you've got some tattoos, by gosh, use the tattoos. That's you. You have the tattoos. So roll up your sleeves and let the tattoo show. You'll stand out a little bit in your audience. So that's number one is your style and personality. The second thing is your experience. Your unique experiences, right? This is the degrees. If you've got degrees, use them. I said earlier, you don't need degrees. Most of the time you don't. Now, if you're my doctor, please, I would like you to have a degree. You know, like I want you to have graduated from a really good school if you're going to, you know, try to figure out like my medical conditions, you know, but your degrees, right? Awards you've won, places you've worked. One of the reasons why I, I talk about my client list, you know, the fact that we've had Michael Hyatt and Jeff Walker and Tony Robbins and people like that as clients, because most people haven't worked with all those people. And it's certainly a way for me to stand out in the marketplace. A lot of people are like, but I don't have all that experience. Your lack of experience can be the way that you stand out. And the example I write about in the book was when I ran, so this would be 20 years ago, I ran for my local school board. I was 22 years old. And I'll never forget this lady got up. We were having a a forum, like a debate. She's like, well, I've been in the education industry for 45 years in this county. She had a park named after and all that. As soon as it was my turn, I looked over and said, I've been alive for half that long. And everybody, you know, died laughing. My point was in my campaign was I can relate to the students. I just graduated high school four and a half years ago. I can relate to today's students. Unlike anybody else up here, the world has changed so much and I can relate. And I almost won. I was the youngest person ever in North Carolina history. I don't know if it's still true to make it through a primary election at that time. The third thing is your personal background. These are things we talked about earlier, you know, like mine, for example, right? I had a single mom till I was nine. I grew up in trailer parks. I moved 13 times in 14 years. I had childhood epilepsy. I then moved to live with my dad. And it was a very unique thing because I went from living with a mom who never made more than $38,000 in her life, again, growing up in trailer parks and moving every nine months to a year, to I lived with my dad right when his career took off. And he started making, quite frankly, a lot of money. So I got to see both extremes of the socioeconomic spectrum. That's a very unique thing about me. So I relate to both. I traveled the country playing golf and played division one athletics and, and those things like these are my unique experiences. Nobody else has your story and we want to use that. And then lastly, your method for you, for example, 
this could have been a blog. You could have written blog posts about how to be more productive. You could have done nothing but solo episodes, but you chose a unique method where you bring people on and you interview them about productivity and you have conversations with them about the things that can make them more productive or that can help them make more money or live a better life. You could have chosen a dozen different methods. You could have released a daily podcast with five-minute tips. You instead went to, I mean, most of your episodes are 50 minutes to an hour, roughly, you know, that's different. There are people out there already doing similar things, but they have a five-minute daily podcast. Is yours better than theirs? Is theirs better than yours? No, they're just different. So it allows you to stand out. And so that's what we want to be able to do with our method there. So your style, your experience, your background, and your method are the ways we look for those angles where we can stand out. That's what's going to attract our audience because what you've attracted, Eric, just like me 10 years ago, were people who wanted to hear interesting conversations with interesting people talking about interesting topics related to productivity or improving you know, life around that area. If you had released a five-minute daily podcast with a quick tip, I wouldn't have listened to it, Eric. And again, that's for somebody else, but you attract your audience when you pick that unique method, style, experience, or background. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One quick note is that you were talking about you don't need degrees, but if you have them, use them. But uh, if you don't have them, you don't have it to use. And in fact, that can also be a strength because what you can do is you can turn your passion, your curiosity and investigating the topic into a passion and bring your audience along with you because there's way more people that are at that level than are at the credential level. Yeah. And that's something, that's something I write about the book. Chapter two is all about. So we skipped it. We skipped ahead and we talked about, you know, capturing attention and building that audience. The first step is to get clear on your passion and we can come back to that if you want to walk through those steps. Yeah. Let's come back to that. Okay. So we'll go back to step one. Then don't let me forget. We got to come back because that entrepreneurial ADHD is going to, is strong in me, Eric, and I'll be all over the place here. So I want to come back to your point about how we can use that lack of experience, you know, and actually be a positive. So we got to get clear on our passion, right? That's the starting point. You know, I, I thought for me, when I first started, I wanted to be the next Michael Hyatt, next Tony Robbins, Les Brown type. So I'm, I'm like, I'm doing leadership and personal development. And those are things I'm passionate about personally. I'm like you, I probably listen or read between 200 and 230 books a year on average. Like if you look at my thing right now, I'm listening to Leadership and Self-Deception, Essentialism by Greg McKeown. I've already read it, but I'm listening to it again. And I'm listening to another one that I forget what it's called, Relentless Solution Focus, I think is the name of it. Yeah, I just finished Traction by Gina Wickman. 
And I've listened to every book that I read, every book that Patrick Lencioni's put out at least three times, except for his new one, which I've only read once. And so these are the things I'm into. I'm passionate about that for my own sake. But when I was trying to create content around those areas, Eric, it was a burden. Like it was just hard for me because I was like, I don't wake up going, I've got seven things I could do content on today. So I thought my passion was leadership and personal development. Then all of a sudden people started coming to me going, Matt, you got to teach people. How do we start an affiliate program? How do we do affiliate marketing? How do we build an email list? How do we start a business? How do we turn our passions into profit? People have been asking that for eight years now. And I was like, but I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the affiliate guy or the online marketing guy. And I'll never forget, I, I had a friend of mine, Dana Abraham. She had her launch coming up. She's in the parenting space. Her course is called Calm the Chaos. And she's like, man, you know, here's what's going on with my launch. I said, Dana, if you don't mind me asking, do you need help with your affiliate program? She's like, oh my gosh, please. And I was like, all right, it's three weeks to launch. I can come in. I can help a little bit. You know, I'm not promising the world to you, but we can help you do better and at least take some of the pressure off of you. I'll help you out. Spent a couple hours a day helping her out. Not a big deal to me. Easy for me to do. Helped her go from $125,000 launch to over a $300,000 launch. She had an affiliate whose goal was five sales, do over 40. An affiliate who the previous launch had done zero sales, do 17. She had another one who the previous launch had done like three sales, do over 50 sales. Her number one affiliate went from like 60 to 75 sales. Boom. I'm thinking at the end of this launch, I'm going, man, I helped a lot of entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a heart for entrepreneurs. And I just helped a bunch of entrepreneurs make more money. And and that's, woohoo, yay me. You know, like that's so exciting. Yay for them. More money's good. And one night I was walking down the stairs and I got halfway down and this thought just hit me because we had had this really peaceful bedtime. We'd had one of those bedtimes. If you've got multiple kids, you know that bedtime's a 50-50 proposition, at least with us. Half the nights, the kids are yelling at each other. They're fighting. It takes them 14 minutes to brush their teeth, not because they're really into dental hygiene, but because they brush for two seconds, put the brush down, go off and do something else, then come back. And you have those type of bedtimes. This one was perfect. It was peaceful. Kids got along and I'm going, oh my gosh, I got halfway down the stairs and this thought hit me that there are other people, like thousands of other families having this same experience tonight because all I did was help some people with affiliate marketing. And if you think about that, like the connection between this little thing that I do, this almost inconsequential, meaningless thing, I'll be the first to admit that what I do on the surface doesn't mean a whole lot to the world. Like I'm not solving world hunger. I'm not Norman Borlock. I didn't discover how to hybridize wheat in sub-Saharan Africa and feed billions of people. I didn't end a war. I didn't do any. I didn't help like hungry people or I didn't help educate thousands of kids or do anything like that. You know, I didn't discover a cure for anything. All I did was teach people affiliate marketing, but thousands of families are having a more peaceful experience because of me. And so just as a side note, the reason why we named my podcast, The Affiliate Guy, was because it was a reminder to me of hundreds potentially thousands of times I told people, I don't want to be the affiliate guy because I didn't think that meant anything. And so I thought my passion was that. I'm going to walk you through three questions you can ask yourself to get your passion because that, like for me, Eric, I thought my passion was that, but what I discovered was my passion, my real, real passion when I asked myself these questions. I only had to ask myself the first two questions. The third one I've shared with people because sometimes the first two don't work, but this is how you get clear. So the first question, what is it that people are always coming to ask you for help with? For me, I just told you, Matt, how'd you grow your email list? How do you do affiliate marketing? How do you start an online business? How do you create content? Like, 
that you've released 500 episodes of your podcast. And I don't do very many interviews. I do, I've done like 20 interviews out of 500 some odd episodes of this podcast. I said earlier, I've done 700 because I used to have another podcast. And so how do you release so many podcasts? How do you do so many videos? How do you release all this content? How do you do all these things? And like, okay, people are always coming to me and asking me for that. That's probably a clue. Our mutual friend, Jonathan Milligan, you know, he had the career blog and he basically taught people how to do resumes and interviews and get new jobs. And then people are like, Jonathan, you have a successful blog. How did you do it? And he realized, this is what I'm passionate about. These are my people. I'm going to help them. Second question is, what is it that people say is really interesting about you? Are you familiar with Hardcore History? My favorite podcast, sorry, Eric, my favorite podcast because I'm a history buff, right? I love, if, if you have a history podcast, it's automatically in my top 10, you know, unless you're really boring, like some of them are. He's not boring, but he's not a historian. He has the, one of the most successful podcasts on the planet. When he releases a new episode, good luck appearing anywhere on the homepage of, of Apple Podcasts because he's going to dominate it for three days. You know, he, that's just how popular his podcast is. He's not a historian, though. He'll tell you 10 times an episode. I'm not a historian. But what did it for him was he'd be at Thanksgiving dinner and there'd be these people going, uh, you know, they'd be talking about something and he'd reference some obscure war in World War II and how it did this and what the impact it had and how the village responded and all these things. And people are like, that is fascinating. He's a great storyteller. So he started a podcast. If those two questions don't answer it for you and you're not like, we're still clear. Oh my gosh, I know what it is. I should be doing this. Ask the third question is, what did you used to struggle at, but now you enjoy success at? And the example, it's the longest example in the, in the book. I think here I'll look real quick, but I think it's almost four pages long, three and a half, three and a half pages long. I talk about Alan Thomas. Alan Thomas is a weight loss coach who at the age of 55 or so woke up one day, weighed 304 pounds. Nine months later, he weighed 175. And he said, Matt, you know, I was the husky kid. I was big when I was 20, 30, 40, 50. And he realized one day that he had to change something. And when he talks to his clients, they're like, Alan, the reason why we chose you was not because you weigh 175 pounds today, but because you know what it was like. It's a different mindset. If you're 40 and you've always been in shape, you don't need Alan. You want to maybe go to the guy who's like, yeah, you know, we're going to get fit. You know, like you want the guy who's always been in shape. He wears bike shorts to every cookout and smells like soup mix all the time. Like he's just always been in shape. That's your guy. But if you're a 58 year old airline pilot who's been overweight for 40 years, you don't want that guy. He's not going to help you. You go to Alan and he got into that niche because he used to struggle with it. He struggled with it every day of his life. And the key ultimately, and, and this, you know, it's funny because I'm listening to essentialism. I know you've had Greg on at least once. I think you've had him on multiple times, haven't you? Just the once. We talked about both his books at the time. Yeah. That was actually how I got introduced to essentialism was through that interview. So I bought through your Amazon link. <laughs> Making 42 cents. You know, but the key, and he, he talks about this like in terms of just getting clear on what you should be doing from a productivity standpoint. But the clear is just to be intentional about who you help. You get to choose who you help. You get to choose who your audience is. If you try to serve everyone, you end up serving no one. The same is true, of course, with our, if we try to have, if we have 25 priorities this quarter, we have no priorities. You have a very specific audience that you serve and the clearer you can get on that. We walked through in the book how to get very clear on your ideal customer avatar. The clearer you can get on that, the more successful you're going to be. Let's pivot. We've talked a lot about passion and a lot of that is laying groundwork for turning 
passions into profits. I think for a lot of people, they get into something because they're passionate about it. They want to grow it into a business, but they're unsure, especially at first, in even the small ways you can start to make something that at least minimally covers your cost as you're still getting started and practicing in public and building your audience. You know, so from my experience, it's kind of like there's early stage, there's mid stage, and then there's kind of sustainable and continuing to grow. What's your perspective on what can somebody do when they're first starting out? And then what are kind of in your mind, those graduating levels of different options that then become possible? You know, it it starts with the mindset side. We have to realize that like making money from our thing is okay. There's this lie kind of in the online platform building world that makes me sick that says that if you're going to monetize your platform, you're selling out, right? As soon as you start to think like a business owner and not just this benevolent content creator, just not this person who gives away free podcast episodes for eternity, you go from seeking to serve into being a greedy mogul type person. It's simply not true. This is the key takeaway. It does not serve your audience not to monetize. If you don't make money, you will go out of business and you will be serving no one. So we're faced with two options. When we're starting out, we're starting out, we got a tiny audience. We're learning kind of how to do things. We're just starting out. We're brand new. Option one is we create a product. The problem with that option is number one, it's expensive. Number two, we don't know what our audience wants. Number three, we don't know how to market it. Number four, we don't even know if they want this thing and we're going to invest a lot of time and money into it and potentially end up with a garage full of unused products. Now, if you create a digital product, still, you took 100 hours and you spent $5,000 and then nobody bought it. That sucks. That's not a good option. The second option is we just give away content indefinitely. And the problem with that is that's what sets our audience up to expect that. So if we ever do have a product, they revolt because they're just used to getting you know content for free. And so when you're starting out, you said, you know, you got a small audience, right? When you're starting out, when no one is paying attention to you, you are in liter- the literal wilderness of your business. You got 32 followers, 18 subscribers, whatever. That is the perfect time to start monetizing. Because some people, they, they come out and they say like, oh, you got to wait till you have X number of followers. You got to blog for Y number of years, record Z number of pod. What are we, this isn't algebra, you know? It's not Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to then get paid. The mind-boggling is some people say you, you got to have a thousand subscribers or then some people say 5,000. Some people say 500. Some people say one year, six months. They're all over the place. So which one's right? None of them are right. Day one, day one, like, like it's mindset. How you view making money from your passion is what determines how much you're going to make and how much of an impact you can have. And so we've got to get into this money making mindset. And this is the reason why, you know, I, I talk about affiliate marketing so much because I love affiliate marketing. I didn't get into affiliate marketing because I necessarily had an innate passion for it at the beginning. It developed over time. And the thing I love about it, if you go back to those two options, make a product that odds are it won't be very good. We don't know if anybody wants it. We don't know how to sell it or give away content indefinitely. And the reason why I love affiliate marketing is affiliate marketing bridges the gap between having nothing to sell and selling nothing at all. And so what we're able to do is we're able to start small. We can recommend some low-priced products to our small audience that gets them in the habit of buying things through us and teaches us how to sell. So just real quick, you know, some of the advantages, like like I just mentioned, number one, you get to monetize immediately. There is a dramatic difference when you start off, let's just say with a blog or a podcast, in your first month between making $5 and $0. It's not the cup of Starbucks you're going to get that makes a difference. 
If you make $0 your first month, you're infinitely more likely to make $0 in your second month, your third month, your fourth month, your fifth month, and your sixth month. After six months of making $0, how excited do you think you're going to be to wake up on day 183? That's when you start missing weeks with your podcast. That's when you start going, I don't know if I even want to do that today. That's when it just becomes a hobby and not a business. You make $5 in your first month, you can make 500 in your second. I'm not suggesting you're going to go full-time in three months, but you can make 500 in your second. You can make 1,000 in your third. You can make 1,500 in your fourth. And then suddenly by month nine or 12, you could be full-time. We've had students go full-time faster. We've had some in some small niches that took a year and a half, two years to go full-time. That's not what matters. The fact that you can make anything in your first month legitimizes what you're doing in your business. For me, I blogged for two and a half years and made nothing, Eric. I made $0. I had thousands of people following me. I had a couple thousand email subscribers. I was changing lives. I had people writing those emails and those tweets. I was getting every week I got comments saying, this was amazing. You changed my life. You changed my marriage. You saved my marriage. You changed my parenting. You helped me make more money in my business. Like, yay, I'm making you money and look at me. And then I did, I did that promo, Michael Hyatt's five days to your best year ever. And I set a goal, Eric. I was like, I'm going to make two sales. I just want to make 250, no, $150 from this promotion. And I'll never forget it. I got the PayPal deposit a couple months later for $588. That $588 barely covered my monthly expenses for my blog and my podcast that I had going. So all the stuff I was paying for barely covered my expenses, but it proved to me that I could do it. So we monetize immediately. The second thing I love about it, you're starting off, there's no hidden costs. There's no customer service. There's no fulfillment. There's no risk. All those things that come with having your own products that I love. I love customer service. I love the fact that we have a little bit of risk and we have to fulfill the products. But when you're starting out and it's just you, or maybe you and an assistant, you don't need those hassles. But then these are the important ones is it teaches you how to sell. It teaches you, you get to do what I call PTP, getting paid to practice. You learn how to sell. You learn what your audience wants, what price points they're going to buy at, what promotional strategies work, what topics are they going to buy at. You know, in your niche, maybe they'll buy a course on time management, but buy a course on goal setting but they won't buy a course on health and fitness. You know, maybe they'll buy the tools, but they won't buy the course that teaches them how to use the tools. I don't know. But you learn that. So you learn what products your audience will actually buy. So as you begin to create your own stuff, you know what to create. And then the last one is it trains your audience how to buy. It trains your audience to expect that periodically there are going to be offers from me. There's going to be a financial transaction so that when I come out with my own product six months later and I say, hey, I've got something for sale, they go, yeah, we're used to that. And many of them choose to buy. And so we have to start off with that affiliate marketing side just to learn all those things and to get some experience under our belt. Yeah. Those are the things that as you were talking and going through those three things, those were essentially struggles that I had had over the past 10 years. We all have. More the early days, more the first five to seven years. It's been over 10 now. And you get over it. You learn, <laughs> you know, very much. I, I appreciated your PayPal balance story because that was very much like something that I had happen to me. In fact, I think I was checking my PayPal balance next to a couple other affiliate people for Michael Hyatt while at his local event that I had gone down to in Nashville. And the, between us, we were like yeah. checking, Hey, have you got it yet? Have you got it yet? Did you get it? And like, we're all kind of joking is like, maybe we should get I remember up on that. You know, we should get up on stage and say, hey, when's that going to happen as a joke? But at that time, that that amount was not nothing. And it made a huge dent 
because we'd trained ourselves, you know, we'd gotten into that mindset. So I'm glad that you mentioned that mindset is really one of the first factors. What are some of the other factors? Yeah. I mean, just to go back to what you said, the biggest jump you're ever going to make is not from, you know, a thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars, 10,000 to 50 from one to anything. It's from zero to anything. So one of the things we do when people go through our course, we have a course called No Product, No Problem. We mail them a package and in there is a certificate that says my first dollar online and we, we give them a dollar bill. We say, don't go spend this dollar bill. You save this until you made a dollar. If you ever go into a restaurant and they have their first dollar up on the wall, right? Their, their, their first transaction and you go, that represents that first transaction. The problem is we get paid via PayPal, like you just said. There is no physical representation to say, once you get that, you go take that dollar, you glue it on there, frame it and put it up on your, we have hundreds, maybe even over a thousand now students who have that up on their office walls. It's so cool. And they take pictures and send them to us. We love them. And we had a lady, her first month, very first month, she goes, I can't do it yet, Matt. I can't do it. But I sold two books on Amazon. I made 47 cents off both, you know, whatever, what is it? 94 cents. She made 94 cents that month. I, I heard from her the other day, we did an interview uh, actually for for one of our courses with her. The last month, she only has 1,600 subscribers right now. She made over $10,000, you know, and it was a good month. We're not making that consistently every month, but she's, she's full-time. You know, she used to be a rocket scientist, really kind of cool. She literally was the person who like invented the system. She wrote a paper on it, like invented the system so astronauts can recycle their own urine and drink it. It's, it's you know, she's like a million times smarter than I'll ever be. And, you know, here she is a couple of years later making $10,000 in a month, but it started with 94 cents. 94 cents. I can guarantee you if she hadn't made that 94 cents in the first month, she might not be doing what she's doing today. You know what? One of the other things that I've heard, I'm not quite sure if this fits into the book or not. And even if it doesn't, consider it bonus material. But uh, one of the key things for a lot of people is they don't start with the end in mind. They come into it thinking, I want to start something and I want to do something and I'm interested in this. I have passion for it. But what they're not thinking about is going full time with it. And that's really what they want. It's not that they have the passion for the thing. It's that they have the passion for the entrepreneurship in a way. And they don't do the check at the beginning or the the assessment, I should say, of, well, then what do I need to do and need to make? What's my level to be able to switch tracks, in other words? Yeah. And there's a balance. There, There is definitely a balance between thinking big, like long-term and doing the next right thing and getting started. I know for me, when I look back, I probably lean too much on that first, which was just you know, like, what do I need to do to start, you know, start writing blog posts, get up a blog, get a domain, make all the easy stuff. And I think there is a balance. I think you need to think a little bit of, okay, I think one year is probably the time frame for most people when they're starting. Like, where do I want this to be in a year practically? You're probably not going to have a quarter of a million followers. All right. A year, you know, first year. So what's a number you would like to have? I think 3,000 to 5,000 is a really good number. Some people grow much faster than that. I, I, we have clients who, you know, 10X that. And we also have clients who've been right in the, on the low end of that, you know, who at the end of the first year, they were like 3,100. You know, we've had people all over that spectrum. And so I think it's to look at, a, you know, what does it look like a year from now? What kind of an impact are you making? How frequently are you releasing content? What kind of money are you making? Who do you have on your team a year from now? Here's the thing. A year from now, you're not going to have 13 employees more than likely. But is your virtual assistant going to be 10 hours a week or do you envision having a full-time one? You know, where are you on that spectrum? What are the tasks 
that you look for a year from now that you look to offload. You know, for me, I did the DIY thing for far too long. You know, I kept it on like, it was one of those things, like I look back and go, why did I do that? You know, why didn't I do as I say, not as I do? You know, why didn't I hire a graphic designer years earlier? Why didn't I hire, you know, a part-time copywriter years earlier to get some of those burdens off of me? And I think picturing what you want it to look like a year from now is probably a healthy thing. And then what I would recommend, this is what we coach people on is, okay, every six months, I want you to think six months more out. And what I mean by that is day one, I want you to think one year out. When you're six months into your business and you actually have a little bit of the flow in mind, now I want you to think to two years or so, you know, so 18 months ahead from there. And then at the end of a year, I want you to think to two and a half years, which would be a year and a half ahead or no, two years. Sorry. I want you to think of two years ahead then. Now we're at that two year mark and we can start thinking, you know, bigger and broader. But early on, I think that one year mark is a pretty good place to think out. If I'm understanding what you're saying is that you start with that one year and then as you're moving through the timeline, each time you hit a new mile marker on that, you're adding in extra buffer, further forecasting and visioning. We actually have a spreadsheet where you can just type in today's date and it fills in the markers for you. Nice. Because sometimes even when I say it out loud, like I just did, my brain goes like, oh, that's really complicated. What? Yeah. <laughs> you got to see it visually or or see the numbers yeah. in front of you to know, you know, okay, those are my check marks. So, yep. and so you know, for where we're at, you know, we're, we're casting five and 10 year visions. You know, we just made our first acquisition, you know, recently of another company. And, and so we're looking, okay, how does that play in? And what does that look like a year from now, two years from now? And really we're even, you know, it's one of the lessons I got, you know, from Michael Hyatt, you know, Michael will be the first to admit that, you know, he waited way too long into his business to start thinking about succession. He's done it, but I mean, he was probably in his 60 by the time he thought about it. And I'm like, I want to start thinking about that when I'm 45. I don't need to do it when I'm 45. I don't plan on leaving the business until I'm 70, but I want to start thinking about it at 45 because now I've got like a 15 year runway to gradually pull myself back, you know, layer by layer. And there's no urgency. Cause you know, yeah, you hit 63 and you're going, you know, you do, you have a health scare or something and you go, gosh, we got to come up with a succession plan and we need to do it in, in six months. That sounds stressful. I don't want to do that. I'd rather do like at the age of 45, if I can get 2% of the way towards my succession plan every year for 10 years, I'm 20% there by 55, which is 20% more than anybody else is by 55, you know? So yeah, we're even starting to think like that. You know, just these little things that we can do and where do we see the company in, you know, in 10 years, it's kind of a crazy exercise. But what we've noticed is when we've done that and then we set the one-year targets, uh, we beat our one-year targets every year for, I don't even know how long, four years now, four or five years. It's been been pretty cool. Yeah. For somebody who's just starting out, they're hearing all of this and, and they may be thinking it's a little bit daunting. Don't worry, you'll get there. Yeah. But it's, it has way more to do with us showing you in this conversation that there is passion involved. There is strategy involved. There's personality involved. You don't have to leave yourself at the door. Honestly, in a lot of ways, we've barely scratched the surface of the book. There's so much practical information and steps and case studies and examples in the book about everything we've just talked about in this conversation. I'd love to just wrap up and say, Matt, where can people go to grab the book? I know it's already in pre-order phase. And when this comes out in a couple of weeks, it'll be basically out and it'll be ready to be grabbed. So let's shoot people over to where they need to get it and find out more. 
Yeah, you can get it anywhere. If I mean, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, if they sell books, they sell it. Like I know even in like the tiniest bookshops have picked up the book, which has been really cool to see. So you can even get it at like, you know, your Theodore's bookshop on Long Island was one that they ordered four books the other day. It was so fun. I was like, that's awesome. (laughs) Uh, So if they sell books, you can get the book, but the best place to get it is actually at passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash to do. We got some extra special stuff there for your listeners, Eric. So some of the stuff that we did just barely scratched the surface. And and even in the book, we kind of scratched the surface. So there's a, a masterclass on your avatar. There's an email marketing class in there. We've got uh, a copywriting thing in there. So a vault of over 10 hours worth of extra lessons and all kinds of special bonuses. If you go again, passionsintoprofitsbook.com forward slash to do. If you're busy while you're you're traveling, you're you're on the treadmill, you're lifting those weights. Good on you, but I've got you covered. It's in the show notes. Click on that later. I, I listen. And you're to all you. good to. Yeah, I, there you go. I'm in the same boat as everybody else. I'm always going like I'm you know in the middle of an episode. I'm doing something. You know, I'm rowing or lifting or sometimes I'm doing the dishes or whatever. I'm like I can't go to that right now. <laughs> so. Uh, I'll tell you one little thing I do that I, just as a quick note is I take a screenshot of the episode and then, cause I, I mean, I, I'll just admit I have ADD, you know, so I will forget. I will get caught up in something else. And then like four days later, I'm just going through my pictures and I'm like looking, you know, I'm like, Oh, where's that picture of my son when he got his haircut? I don't have a screenshot of that episode. What was I doing? What was I doing? What was I doing? Oh yeah, that's right. And I go back to the show notes and click on the thing to buy the book. I think that's probably how I bought essentialism and like, because I bought. 30 books through you over the years. Cause you know, you have great guests on, but that's, I'd say half of them. That's how I remembered to actually do it was because I took a screenshot. Well, that's a great productivity tip on capturing right there. Cause you, you're yeah. going to forget if you don't just place some sort of marker somewhere, even if it's an unintentional discovery later, you at least captured it so that you would discover it later, but discover it now, go to the show notes when you have time and click the links, grab the book, Matt, it's been great talking with you. And let's do breakfast again like we did before. We need to. We need to catch up. Awesome. Well, good to see you. Thanks for being here. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Matt McWilliams like I did. I just know that this book is going to do a lot of people a lot of good. There was things in here that, man, I wish I had heard about or thought about or been coached on years ago. Trust me, it's not easy, but it can be easier than other people who've struggled through it. And that's where this book comes in. And again, if you pre-order it right now, you can get a bunch of extra bonuses and you can get it by going to passionsintoprofitsbook.com slash E-R-I-K. You can also find that link in the show notes. But again, it's passionsintoprofitsbook.com slash E-R-I-K. If you've made it this far, then I'm hoping that you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I bet you can think of somebody else that you know would benefit from hearing this conversation. So would you do me a favor and do them a favor by sharing this episode with them? Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice. Pass it along to them. Let them know that you thought it would benefit them. Thank you so much for doing them and me that favor. Thank you again for listening. And I'll see you next episode.